Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Men from lesser states may know their state's capital, but you, you know your state's bird, tree, and even reptile. Love that horny toad. You display your pride with your Lone Star tattoo, native Texan bumper sticker, and contempt for any state that doesn't start with Tex and end with Is. That spells Texas. Sure, there are 49 other states in the Union, but they're smaller, wussier. And the people talk funny. Yankee Wussy. So crack open a nice cold Bud Lighto, lover of the Lone Star State, because all that flag waving must have made you mighty thirsty. Mr. Wade, you've got to tell me. Bud Light beer at Isaac Houston, Texas. Big Chief and Big Train. It's 18th of June, 1925, as President Calvin Coolidge hands Walter Johnson coveted award. Johnson of Washington Senators has been chosen most valuable player in American League. Well-deserved honor for famed pitcher. Welcome to my dojo, those other parts are so-so I'm chew like bro-yo, focus like a GoPro Ripping up this promo, check out the scoreboard Preach, I'm throwing no-nos, it's going, it's going, it's going Yo, it's gone, your heart just stop Cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated I mean it, pull up the pot, scroll it down, then read it Written, produced, directed, and mixed Dung on your lips and Ozzy Smith backflips Pick a tip, any tip, get onto it I got ridiculous pods without forcing it You sit at home, cry like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world, yo The pods are written behind tracks that mixed in Smooth with the groove to make ears wanna listen At a little cut and a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up You think another white rap bag, but this ain't no ad jack My hobby's the rhyme, some people try to be black But that about time I come out, call the show PKP and let me turn it out, yo Name Jake the Snake, born of 71 Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory And that's why I collect Ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players 
and their stories. What's cracking, you cement freaks? What's Gucci? Welcome back into the dojo for yet another week of the baseball podcast show, Spanning the Globe. It's Tuesday, folks. So, that means BKP is set to invade your ear holes as every week I like to go sit in the dojo, pontificate the history of the game, the history of the seams with you fine freaks, and get down to the brass tacks as I dissect the characters, pop culture, moments, and stadiums that have been woven into the history of baseball and the DNA fabric of America. Hello everybody, it's your boy Jake the Snake Robinson, I got your hookup, holler if you hear me, and it's kind of a bittersweet moment for me as the World Series trophy will reside in the state of Texas for a second year in a row as the Rangers choke out the Diamondbacks in five games to hoist the crown, and I say bittersweet moment for me, because... This truly might have been my favorite baseball season in the 2000s. Everything just kind of went off the fucking rails. Nothing went to script. And the Texas Rangers winning the World Series. It just feels appropriate after the MLB season that all of us team heads have witnessed. I'm, I'm sad to see it go away. I really felt like I fell in love with the game all over again this year. And... What can I say about the Rangers? I mean, they flat out earned it. And in the end, they were the best team in baseball. They went through three tough teams in Tampa, Baltimore, and Houston. I mean, they won all four games in the juice box. They played against their in-state bullies in the Astros. They had an elite run, run differential. My fact, the only team... Well, the higher one during the season was Atlanta. Bruce Bochy has proven that you can come back and not the roots of that shit. He's one of the all-time greats. His work in the post was stellar. They overcame injuries. Evan Carter is a pimp. And the trades they made for Jordan Montgomery, Matt Scherzer... Picking up Chapman, Chris Stratton to solidify this suspect staff and bully. They were just stellar moves by the front office. And it gave Bochy much needed depth in the post. Corey Seager, straight up badass. World Series MVP. I'm thinking my boy Gunnar Henderson has that ability to be that type of player. A lot of similarities there. And the Arizona Snakes... You got nothing to hang your heads about. They just ran into a white, hot chainsaw. And the Snakes, their future is very bright. And they give teams like me, a fan of the Orioles, they give us hope. Money is not the equalizer anymore. The game is evolving. That's why you saw Tampa Bay, Miami, Milwaukee, Baltimore. Seattle just barely missed it. The game is evolving. So, you know, the Snakes, they got nothing to hang their heads about. Congratulations to the Texas Rangers and their fans around the globe for their first World Series championship in franchise history. And before I dip into this week's story, 
I would be remiss if I didn't put out some sad news from the week since the last time I held court. And it's kind of ironic that it has a connection to the champion Rangers, as well as the team we'll be focusing in on this week, the Washington Senators. And before there was White Sox legend, the Big Hurt, Frank Thomas, there was another slugger named Frank Thomas who played during the 60s and 70s. His name was Frank Thomas for the Dodgers, the Senators, the Rangers. In his prime, he stood 6'7", he weighed 255 pounds, a huge man amongst the peers of his era. A Bunyan-esque type player who crushed some of baseball's more prolific home runs in his career. While also rolling up prodigious strikeout numbers, unable to ever conquer his penchant for chasing bad pitches. He died in a hospital in Aldi, Virginia on October 30th from complications from a stroke he suffered. Frank played 16 seasons in the league, amassing 382 home runs. And many of them are unforgettable. As a Dodger in 1960, he hit a ball clear out of the expanse of Forbes Field over the left field wall that was later found alongside a parked car some 560 feet away from home plate. Howard drove in 1,119 runs in his career, but he also struck out 1,460 times. That kind of sounds like a ball player in the 21st century. Some of the outfield seats at RFK Stadium in D.C. were painted white, denoting some of his more memorable blasts, to which Frank would say in his wry, self-deprecating way, that all the ones painted green symbolize all the times he struck out. He was nicknamed Hondo after Hondo Lane, the character played by John Wayne in the 1953 Western movie classic Hondo. While playing for the Senators, he was called the Capital Punisher. And I'm pretty sure we'll be adding old Hondo to our collection one day, but I would be remiss if we didn't give him his due this week posthumously. Frank Thomas, Hondo, the Capital Punisher. Rest in peace. Godspeed and time will not dim the glory of your deeds. And Freaks, it looks like the catcher is ready to throw down. The umpire is called play ball. The infield throwing that seed around. Let's clear the platform here at Terrapin Station. Kiss your hug and hug your loved ones goodbye. I'm calling all aboard. And let's load up our BKP time travel choo as I will be uh, taking you back. In fact, the BKP time travel choo will be meeting the big train. Walter Johnson. And I want you guys to find a comfortable spot on the train. Open your kimonos as we bend space and time. To bear witness to one of the greatest pitchers who ever lived, Walter Big Train Johnson. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I don't dare go through Kansas where our story begins. Uh, especially at the turn of the century as the Dust Bowl, it's gonna wreak havoc on the delicate instruments of our time travel choo-choo here. So, I'll be setting our time and destination for 1902, Olinda, California. And... While we traverse time to get to our destination, how about a little backstory about the great 
Walter Johnson. On August 2nd, 1907, after watching rookie pitcher Walter Johnson and his Washington Senators fall in defeat to the eventual AL pennant winning Tigers 3-2 in his major league debut, sports writer Frank Graham penned the words, Beyond a doubt, the greatest pitcher to ever scuff a rubber with his spikes. And even the immortal Ty Cobb said after the game that his fastball made him flinch, flinch and it hissed at him with danger. 20 years later, after his last pitch of the majors had been thrown, his recorded stats were beyond belief. And they set the benchmark for pitching in the new century and for the hurlers of the future to aspire for. 417 wins, 3,509 strikeouts, 110 shutouts. 12 seasons with 20 more wins, 11 seasons with an ERA below 2. And let's not forget, 531 complete games and 666 starts. And as superlative as the big trains statistical numbers prove out him out to be in a world where maybe only a handful of people are left who saw him compete. Legendary DC sports writer, Hall of Famer, Shirley Povitz once wrote, Walter Johnson, more than any other ball player, probably more than any athlete, professional or amateur, became the symbol of gentlemanly conduct in the heat of competitive battle. Walter Perry Johnson traveled a most curious and improbable securitist route to his Major League Baseball debut, the stardom and the baseball immortality. He was born November 6, 1887 on a farm in Allen County, Kansas. The second of six siblings for Minnie and Frank Johnson. And as a child... For as long as he can remember, he helped his parents scratch out a living on their 160-acre farm. He was an outdoorsy boy whose lifelong passion in life was always hunting and fishing. Baseball really wasn't on his radar during his youth as work on the farm monopolized most of his childhood time. Now, around the turn of the century... The Johnsons, they're forced to give up the farm due to the heavy droughts in Kansas, the dust bowl. I mean, nothing grows there. So, when Walter is in the 8th grade, the Johnsons move from Humboldt, Kansas, where his father worked, uh, they moved to Humboldt, Kansas, where his father worked odd jobs to put food on the table. Not long after settling down in Humboldt, his mother Minnie kept receiving word that her parents and siblings were all moving to the oil fields in Southern California. And here we are, folks, coming around the corner and out of that wormhole into the year of our Lord, 1902. Olinda, California, after years of struggle and poverty in Kansas, Frank, Minnie, and the Johnson unit 
packed their shit and joined the family migration in 1902, settling down in Olinda, California, where Frank found work as a teamster for the Santa Fe Oil Company. And between working on the Kansas farm and later in the oil fields of SoCal, Walter develops a strong muscular six foot one inch frame that fills out to 200 pounds at the age of 16. And this is when he begins to get his first taste of baseball. He begins playing on the California Sandlots. And truth be told, he's a Roy Hobbs natural. He begins competing against dudes on a semi-pro team sponsored by the local oil company. Most of them are adults. And a local reporter wrote that Johnson was presented as a high school kid. But he is certainly a graduate in the science of throwing a baseball. The loosely organized SoCal Baseball League continued year-round pitting town teams and company teams in these barnstorming tours against one another. And during the winter months, the roster could be augmented with major and minor leaguers looking to make some extra cash during the offseason. So over the next three years, this was his environment, and this was the environment that he used to hone his blossoming skills. For someone who began to play baseball at such a late stage in life, Johnson would readily admit that pitching was not of his doing, but a gift from God. From the very first time he held onto a ball, it settled right into his palm like it belonged there. And when I first threw it, the ball, wrist, hand, arm, and shoulder, it all worked together in harmony. And his pitching motion is unique in that he had a short windmill style windup, followed by this like sweeping sidearm delivery. During his first part of his career, he relied almost exclusively on his explosive fastball. In 1913, six years after his Major League Baseball debut, he develops a nasty curveball. For over six years, he's a one-pitch pitcher dominating the league. Think Mariano Rivera. But a starter. In April of 1906, a former teammate arranges a job for Walter with Tacoma in the Northwest League. And after one exhibition outing, he gets released. But another ex-teammate of his lands him a gig with the Wiser, a team in Idaho in the semi-pro Southern Idaho League for $90 a week. And $90 in 1906 extrapolated to the 2023 economy and has the purchasing power around $1,500 today. Pitching for Wiser that year, Walter goes 7-1 before returning home to Cali. In the second season for Wiser, 
Why, uh, Walter takes his game to another level, and he becomes the focal point of attention for teams throughout the majors. When he goes 14-2 with a .55 ERA, striking out 214 batters and 146 innings pitched. Washington Senators manager Joe Cantillo. He begins receiving daily telegrams, touting Johnson's pitching feats, and the wire services were spreading far and wide. As the story of young Walter in a string of 77 consecutive scoreless innings, which included back-to-back no-nos. Chantillion sends injured catcher Cliff Blankenship to Idaho on a scouting trip and determines that the young phenom was everything he was billed to be. He persuades the 19-year-old Johnson to accept a Washington contract. And at first... Walter's reluctant to accept this offer, and he demands that a paid train ticket to return to California be added as a provision to the deal. Should he not make the grade and have to return home? And before he commits, he insists on wiring his parents to receive their blessing and permission to sign. And after a thumbs up by his parents, Walter signs the offer. And on July 22nd, 1907, damn near, the whole town shows up at the Wiser Depot to see him off. A teary-eyed Johnson said goodbye to the town and his friends. A group of appreciative Wiser fans had tried to convince him to stay, offered to set him up with a cigar shop on the town square. And Walter politely thanked them and rebuffed the offer, saying later in life that, At 19 years old, he wanted to see the world. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to take a break. When we get back, we'll talk about Walter and his many exploits while pitching for the Washington Senators. BRB Freaks, please support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots baseball pod. Laparose Hand Cleaners. No more smelly hands. Don't go to where cements. Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, Dave Gee, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hanks, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crab and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cream. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy food or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait pumps, crawfish hand cleaner, clean hand cleaner, removes the spicy bits around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he and his family, folks. The one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Black Rose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaner. Buy one, get one. The only advertised products on Backwards Case Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. 
After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelling spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to DKT sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm John Fisher. New York's Yankee Stadium, 70,000 ball fans and a spellbinding moment between the two games of a Yankee-Washington doubleheader. For out of retirement comes the big train of baseball, Washington's Walter Johnson. Co-starring once again with the mighty Babe Ruth, greatest drawing card in the history of the game. Supporting cast brings out catcher Benny Bengal and umpire Billy Evans. And baseball turns back its time-worn pages to 15 years ago. Johnson, the fastest fireball pitcher of them all, and the Sultan of Swat who pulled 60 home runs for a season record that stands today. Ruth, now 48 years old, slowed up a little, but there's no denying the follow-through. Johnson is 55, not the blinding speed merchant, but they still cut the corners of the plate. For the crowd, there can be but one climax as the two baseball immortals face each other once again. And here it is. Into the spot called Ruthville, the right field stands, and the Bambino trons the circuit path with the old familiar music in his ears. But mark this indeed, one of baseball's greatest days is its contribution to the Army-Navy Service Fund of more than $80,000. Yes, sir, it still takes the old-timers to do a bang-up job. Wake up late, honey, put on your clothes and take a credit card to the liquor store. Well, that's one for you, a two for me by tonight. Welcome back, you same head pranks. Before I stepped out, we basically covered the first act of Walter Johnson. We saw him come from humble beginnings in Kansas. The son of farmers who were basically chased away from their original place where they lived at. Because of the Dust Bowl, they emigrate to California, the oil fields of Southern Cali. And up to this point, you know, this is like he's 12 years old. He's never really had any experience in the game of baseball. He's more of a hunter and a fisherman. Most of his spare time as a kid was spent on the farm doing chores. And he just really he never had exposure to baseball until he gets to California. 
And from day one, the ball is like attracted to hit the palm of his hand. And he becomes a highly regarded and touted pitching prospect, I guess if you want to call it back then. And teams come snipping around. And one thing I didn't tell you about in the first act, the Pirates were actually the first team to come snipping around for uh, Johnson here. And you may have thought it was funny that Walter asked the Senators for a train ticket home in case it didn't work. But the truth is, he asked the Pittsburgh Pirates for the same provision, and the Pirates were like, you know, they basically laughed him out of the building. They were like, no way, dude. We're not giving you that. If you don't make it, you, you got to find your own way home. So when the Senators came around, he was a little leery about going to the Major Leagues in the first place. But they basically tell him that, yes, we will give you a train ticket for your ride home if it doesn't work out. They were very secure in their decision to scout this uh, 19-year-old kid right here. And the truth is, the Senators to this point had never finished higher than 6th place in the American League. Oh, and go back to that Pirates thing. It just crossed my mind. I mean, can you imagine the turn of the century and the Pirates have the best shortstop in the game, Hannes Wagner, and they got the best pitcher in the game and Walter Johnson. And, you know, butterfly peg moment. That, that little maneuver right there could have changed all of history. Instead of the Cubs... Red Sox and the Philadelphia A's dominating, you know, and with to some extent the Giants dominating that first decade of the 1900s. You know, you put Walter Johnson and and Hannes Wagner together, and you got to think, you know, they went to the World Series anyway a couple times during the 1900s. The Pirates did. Can you imagine with Walter Johnson on that squad? So butterfly effect moment. And the team that he does wind up signing for, the Washington Senators, well, to this point, they've never finished higher than sixth place in the American League. But from day one, Walter Johnson backed up his highly touted hype, and he found immediate success, posting a 1.88 ERA and 110 and a third innings pitch that rookie year. But it wasn't enough as the Senators finished the 1907 season with a 49 and 102 record, 43 and a half games behind Ty Cobb and the Tigers, who would win the AL pennant that year. And Walter's presence in the Senators' rotation, it made very little difference in the team's success over the next two years. Even more than that, I guess. After improving to 7th place in 1908, the Woeful Nats, as they were being called then, returned to the cellar in 1909, finishing with a 42-110 win-loss record, 56 and a half games out of first place, and 20 games behind the 7th place St. Louis Browns. And this was not on the head of Walter Johnson. Although his personal... Win-loss record on the bump took a beating. 
Nowadays, the win-loss record is a minuscule metric in the totality of a pitcher's worth. But in 1909, it is the end-all, be-all for a pitcher and his brand. So, in 1909, I'm sure Walter is disappointed in his 13-25 record. But his 2.22 ERA during that dead ball season was better than league average. And his 164 strikeouts ranked second in the league. In 1908, Walter recorded one of the greatest stretches of pitching moments in the game's history over the Labor Day weekend. And with his pitching staff at Shambles, manager Joe Cantillion sends the sturdy hurler to the mound in New York City for three consecutive starts over a four-day period against the Highlanders. The big train destroyed the future Yankees ball club with three complete game shutouts. Not only did he twirl three consecutive shutouts, he got seemingly stronger and stronger and more impressive in each game of the series, giving up six hits in game one, four in game two, and only two in game three. The performance electrified the baseball universe, and Walter Johnson was becoming a household name. In the conscience of, you know, the typical seam head of the early 1900s. In 1910, Walter posted a 25 and 17 record with a 1.36 ERA, 313 strikeouts. The Washington team improves to a seven play finish, and this would mark the beginning of a 10 year run that saw the big right hander never finish under 20 victories for the season. I'm very impressive for a man who not only learned how to play the game so late in life, but he also played on some horrendously bad baseball teams. After his Labor Day weekend exploits in 08, the baseball scribes began coining him the big train for the blinding velocity of his fastball. And during the 1910s, the Senators did some, they did earn some degree of respectability Finishing second in nineteen twelve and nineteen thirteen and nineteen eighteen with the world at war with one another for the first time, the Senators are in a dogfight with the Boston Red Sox and Cleveland Indians for AL supremacy when the US government issues a work or fight order, bringing the curtain down on the baseball season with Washington in third place and only four games out of first place on Labor Day. And without question, the reason for Washington's incremental improvements during the second decade of the 1900s can directly be attributed to the hard-throwing big train. The franchise finishes the 1910s with a team record of 755-737 with a 507 winning percentage. And during that span, Walter goes 246 and 143 for a 650 winning percentage. As the rest of the Senator's staff goes 490 and 737 for a 452 winning percentage. The fact that Walter lost 143 games during that span was due in large part to the mediocre bats and the Little League defense. The club ran out on the field every single day. 
effect that is magnified when you understand that Walter holds the baseball record for the number of 1-0 wins with 38, as well as the record for 1-0 losses with 26. So take that, Jacob DeGrom. Walter's peak years were 1912 and 1913. And you gotta check these out. I mean, I, I just can't do justice. You gotta see him for yourself. His age, 24 and 25 years. He goes 33 and 12 and 36 and 7, respectively. Winning a Chalmers Automobile in 1913 as the American League MVP. And by now, he has attained fame. And he's admired throughout the baseball universe, not only for his top-shelf liquor abilities and his fierce competitiveness, but also for the modesty, humility, and dignity that he exemplified and conducted himself with. Today, he would be considered boring to the new breed of Seamheads. He never pounded his chest after striking out the eight-hole hitter. He never pointed at the sky in fake bravado after doing his fucking job. He never argued or glared at an umpire about a missed strike call. He never used foreign substances in an era when the spitter was legal. Just the arm and baseball acumen that God gave him late in life. And he figured that's going to suffice. At a time when the MLB baseball fraternity was filled with drunken ruffians, Walter was never involved in a brawl. He never cussed, and he didn't patronize Waterhall saloons of the day. In fact, he kind of got this uh, reputation for a guy who takes it easy. Meaning... He was a fierce warrior, competitive warrior, as you'll ever find, but he also had a gentle side to him. He didn't want to embarrass his friends. In fact, Ty Cobb, who I mentioned at the beginning of the show, talks about how the baseball is hissing past him, right? But Ty Cobb learned to exploit that fastball, and Ty Cobb would crowd the plate because he knew that Walter Johnson was such a gentleman he would never in a million years come inside high and tight and buzz his tower. So Cobb exploited him and would, you know, often crowd the plate. He was a very gentle, classy dude. And during the summer of 1913, Walter meets the love of his life, Hazel Lee Roberts, the daughter of Nevada. What is it? Nevada or Nevada? I think it's Nevada, right? But anyway, she's the daughter of a Nevada congressman. In 1914, their romance becomes the tabloid talk of the day in Washington society. The couple ties their nuptials and they're married June 24th, 1914, with the chaplain of the U.S. Senate officiating. The two would have six children, five of whom would live to adulthood. His 10-year run of 20 or more wins is snapped in 1920 when he encounters a bad cold a sore arm, pulled hamstrings, which limit the stud to an 8-10 and 10 mark in 21 appearances. And he did manage to toss the first and only no-no of his career at the Boston Red Sox on July 1st. 
And even though his health and overall stuff did return in 1921, what sees him go 17 and 14, all field tragedy hits home for the legend as his father Frank dies of a stroke in July and his two-year-old daughter Eleanor dies from influenza in December. And with the horrific memories of these two haunting his psyche, Walter and Hazel sell their farm and decide to move to Bethesda, Maryland as their year-round residence. Walter decided to make 1924 his 18th season in the majors, his swan song into retirement. His plan was to return to Cali and become an owner in the vaunted Pacific Coast League. But Senator's owner, Clark Griffith, had finally assembled a team that was worthy of complimenting their ace. And for the first time in franchise history, the Washington Senators had captured the AL crown and pennant. And a rejuvenated big train, buoyed by his new talented teammates surrounding him. I mean, he's locked in all year. He goes 23-7. and seven. He wins a second AL MVP. Leads the league and wins ERA strikeouts and shutouts. Game 1 of the 1924 World Series sees the big train squaring off against John McGraw and his New York Giants at Griffith Stadium in the nation's capital. And it met the pregame hype as it is still one of the most dramatic Game 1s in World Series history. Walter pitches well, but he loses 4-3 in 12 innings pitched. And Game 5... Obviously, still affected by the 165-pitch performance he delivered in the series opener. The big train sputters in the quirky polo grounds, losing 6-2 behind his lackluster showing. And the Senators are now one game away from losing the series as the Giants take a three-games-to-two advantage, and it looks as though... Walter may never throw another pitch in the World Series. His chances to capture the elusive World Series chip may never happen again for him. This team is his best and possibly last chance. In Game 6, Walter watches from the bench as his team rallies for a 2-1 victory behind the pitching of Tom Zachary to set the stage for Game 7 in the district. And on a beautiful Indian summer of an afternoon, as the cheers and ovations from the game echo across the D.C. landscape, the hometown crowd becomes even louder when they see their iconic hero making his way to the Senators' bully from the dugout in the sixth inning. After player-manager Bucky... Harris, well, he actually hits a home run to open the game in the fourth inning. Then he ties the game at threes with his clutch single in the bottom of the eighth. And going into the top of the ninth, he waits on the mound, and he calls for the big train. And when Walter climbs that hill and takes that ball from Bucky, the skipper tells him, You're the best we got, Walter. We're going to win or lose with you. And Walter 
calmly takes the orb into his hands, and in his usual unflappable stoic way, he proceeds to carve up the Giants pitching four scoreless innings that saw the crafty vet pitch his way into and out of one jam after another before the horrified and thrilled Senators faithful. Twice after intentionally walking Ross Young, he struck out Major League RBI champ George Kelly. And he did that twice. Talk about knowing where your outs are in the lineup, right? In the bottom of the 12, Earl McNeely's grounded a third. It hits a pebble, and it bounces over the head of Giants third baseman Freddie Lindstrom. And then it dribbles into left field, scoring Muddy Ruel. And the Washington Senators secured their first and only World Series title in franchise history. With the big train awash in the glow of this world title aftermath, Walter returns home to Olinda, California. He pitches an exhibition game versus his good friend Babe Ruth. He visits some Hollywood movie studios, and he's also hard at work trying to procure ownership of a team in the PCL. And after his purchase venture collapses, he decides to return to Washington for another big league campaign as a defending champion. The Senators have a superb 1925 season. They win the pennant handily. And the big train delivered the last 20 wins season of his career. He also set the single season record for highest batting average for a pitcher that still stands today. 433. So eat your heart out, Shohei Otani. Another unbreakable record set by train. When you consider, you know, we live in the age of the universal DH, right? So 433. 433. In a season by a pitcher, that's going to stand forever. However, the 1925 World Series did not see the same results as the year before. This time, Washington would square off versus the Pittsburgh Pirates. And after dominating the Buccos in games one and two by the final score of four to one and four to nothing, the Senators, with Walter on the mound, they lose 9-7 to in Game 7 on a rainy, muddy day in the Berg. A game that most assuredly would not have been played today. After 1927, the big train called it a career and began managing a ball club in Newark, New Jersey in the International League. A year after that, he returns to the district where he serves as a manager for four seasons. He also managed the Cleveland Indians from 1933 to 1935, where he was constantly attacked by the local press as being too easy going with the players, even though he had an overall winning percentage of 550 as a manager. And he was just a good guy, you know? That's all. On August 1st, 1930, Walter suffers the biggest tragedy of his life when his wife Hazel at the young age of 36, dies as a result of heat exhaustion. She suffered on a cross-country jive during one of the hottest summers on record. After the loss of his wife, Walter descends into the black clouds of melancholy, darkening what should have been his happy, tranquil years of retirement on his Mountain View farms on the Maryland countryside. As arguably 
the greatest pitcher in baseball history. During the later years, Walter kept busy on the farm. He served as a Montgomery County Commissioner. He was brought back by the Senators to broadcast their games on the radio in 1939. And he made an unsuccessful bid uh, as a, when he ran as a Republican for a seat in the U.S. Congress. On June 12, 1939, Walter, Ruth, Cobb, Hannes Wagner, and Christy Mathewson become the first and by far the greatest class to ever be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. During World War II, he made several brief playing appearances in war bond games, including serving up pitches to Ruth and Yankee Stadium. They got clips of that on YouTube with no sound, if you're interested in checking that out. And, you know, both men are, you know, they're, they're, they're older. Names like 48, I believe Walter is 55. And it's a lot of give and take, purely exhibition, but the bomber, does, uh, the Bambino does hit a blast that nearly clears the stadium. After an illness of several months caused by a brain tumor, Walter Johnson dies at the age of 59 on December 10th, 1946. And he is buried next to Hazel at Union Cemetery in Rockville, Maryland. No one in the game could match his velocity during his era. Through science and technology of today, we now know he threw around 93 consistently and he would top out around 95, which is about average in today's game, but it was unheard of in his time. And, you know, these dudes are swinging like 44-ounce clubs, right? The tall barrel-chested hurler with his right hand winding up, slinging the ball sidearm like he was skipping stones across the Potomac River. With very little hip and ass, the sphere would explode from his hand like a big train racing down the tracks. He is one of the few segregated Major League Baseball pitchers of the 20th century that I believe could compete in today's game. No problem. I know, I know that 93-mile-per-hour fastball is not going to stand on its own today, but I have to consider that Johnson was a side-armer. They tend to pitch slower on an average. And I did the research. For anyone who's interested, Jake Diekman would be the only side-armer in the league today who throws harder than him. And Big Train had good control. He had a nasty curve that he developed. He was a great athlete. For me, he probably has the best chance of any pre-World War II pitcher to be a force in today's game. For me? Well, look, I I would have him in my 20th century pre-integration Major League Baseball pitchers, Mount Rushmore. Along with Christy Matheson, Eddie Plank, Lefty Gomez, I think. I don't know. What do you guys think? Hit me up. Give me your opinion on the 20th century pre-integration Major League Baseball pitchers, Mount Rushmore. And you can't put Cy Young on there. He didn't play in the 1900s. So, I think that's where I'm going to call it, Briggs. I really enjoyed the work and the research that went into the Big Chain Pod much like Jimmy Fox a few weeks ago, most of my knowledge about Walter was superficial and on the surface. And I'm proud to have this platform and audience to deliver this legend's journey 
from Humboldt, Kansas, to Olinda, California, to Cooperstown, New York. Now, Washington, D.C., and beyond. Now, thanks for joining me this week. And I promise, folks, I'll be back in the cage tomorrow trying to be better for you next week. Before I dip, let's take a trip and marvel at the amazing career stats from this one-of-a-kind pitcher, Walter Perry Johnson, born November 6, 1887 in Humboldt, Kansas. So, Walter Johnson, nicknamed the Big Train, as well as Barney after race car driver, Barney Oldfeld. He is officially 136 years old and one day upon the drop of the show into the baseball universe. He went to Fullerton Union High School in Fullerton, California. Was the 2,950th player to ever play Major League Baseball when he makes his debut on August 2nd, 1907. 20-year MLB career, all with the Washington Senators. And boy, oh boy, where do I begin? Buckle up your chin strap, buttercup, and breathe it in, freaks. 165.1 war, which is the second highest behind only his good friend George Herman. His 152.4 pitching war is second only to Denton Drew Cy Young. He appeared in 808 games, the 52nd most for any pitcher. He started in 666 of those games, the 13th most starts ever. 23,415 batters face, the third most ever in the game. 5,914 innings pitched, the game's third highest total. A 4-17-2-79 win-loss record. So... Those 417 wins are the second most wins by a pitcher. And that's, of course, behind Cy Young and his 5'11", which we all agree will never be broken. Well, I got news for you folks. Walter in his second place finish at 417, it ain't going nowhere either. His 279 losses are fourth on the list behind Cy Young, Pud Galvin, and Nolan Ryan. And... I'm so old, I remember living in a baseball universe when Walter Johnson had the most strikeouts ever. His 3,509 K stood as a benchmark for 64 years until Steve Carlton, Nolan Ryan, and Gaylord Perry passed him in the 1983 season. He is now ranked ninth all-time in strikeouts. Of the 18 pitchers in the 3,000 strikeout club, he pitched the most innings, and has the lowest strikeouts per nine. A career 2.170 or 12th best. 110 shutouts. The most in the history of baseball. That's never being broken. ERA plus of 1.7. The 10th best in the game ever. 2.38 FIP. 12th best. 1.06 WHIP. I mean, it's just absurd. Five pitching titles, 1912, 1913, 1918, 1919, 1924. Three-time pitchers, triple crown winner, 1913, 1918, 1924. 1913 and 1924, ALMVP. He led the league in strikeouts 12 times. The most ever by anyone. 
The only man who has ever come close is Nolan Ryan with 11. In 1936, Johnson is one of the original five inaugural members to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen of all ages, this is the story of the big train, Walter Johnson. JFC, I was getting a little overwhelming, regurgitating those stats at you. Thank you, CMEDS, for joining me this week. I feel like I've accomplished my goals. Uh, painted this blank audio canvas the way I wanted. So, Vinny, Vinny, but see, I came, I saw, I kicked its ass. BKP is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your shows. I'm there. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. Please share with your seamhead buddies. Rate and review as you see fit. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anyone else. I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscriptions. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Corey Seager. That dude is a monster. And speaking of monsters, as I get you Siemens back to your loved ones at Terrapin Station, I see the big train getting smaller and smaller in my rear view. So I turn my attention to our never-say-die baseball hydra. I grab my katana from under my kimono, and I chop. The head of that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going to go from the most dominant pitcher of the segregated era to probably one of the most dominant pitchers the baseball universe has ever known. Next week, oh man, I can't wait. Next week. I bring you Hall of Famer, member of the Black Aces, the incomparable Bob Gibson. Gibby, folks, I truly can't wait to start the work on it. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch like a board AF, Winter is coming. You still got time, though. Take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hilleman told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Thanks for dropping by, freaks. We got Gibby next week. I'm throwing up my Gunner Hendersons to all of you freaks. My deuces. Peace.